Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. It is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Tuesday, January 19th, 2021, people. I hope everybody had a great weekend. Uh, I hope everybody's doing well. And I want to give a quick shout-out to Jeremy Pruitt because I was away this weekend. Uh, I was back in Connecticut. Shout-out to my mom who listens to this show. She got remarried this weekend. I was very proud to be with her and be away from what I normally do. Uh, But as I traveled back to California from Connecticut, I kind of mentally had checked out and said, you know what, I'm not doing another show until Tuesday night into Wednesday. I'm not going to do a show on Martin Luther King Day when I land. Uh, And then Jeremy Pruitt gets fired, right? I land in Vegas for a a layover flight. I turn on my phone. Jeremy Pruitt's out. And so we will do a show today uh, talking about a few different things. We will talk, obviously, we will lead with this Jeremy Pruitt stuff. We will then go into uh, a little bit on Urban Meyer. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. One, because I've talked about it a lot. But two, the hire happened six, seven days ago now. And so we'll talk about Urban Meyer. Then we will, of course, transition, take a break, go to a little hoops where obviously the Baylor-Kansas game happened on Monday night, excuse me, into Tuesday. Uh, Some other stuff from the weekend. We'll look ahead to some of the big storylines. We'll, of course, talk about, again, I hate to say it, but we will probably talk Kentucky as they fall to four and whatever now. I don't even know. Um, but so frustrating to watch. I'm not even a Kentucky fan, and seeing how John Calipari, it's just not John Calipari's year, right? So we'll talk about that to end the show, and we will get out of here. Also, one quick note, I do want to apologize for last episode uh, with Sean Farnham. I listened back to it. The sound quality was not good. Many of you reached out to me. I get your frustration as a consumer, um, but it's one of those deals I was traveling, the, the quality wasn't good, so I do apologize. I will make a better effort to make sure that the, the shows sound better going forward. Uh, and, and, you know, we're going to have a good couple weeks, couple months here on the Aaron Torres Pod, but I want to apologize for that. With that said, I want to remind you, first of all, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Go on that iTunes page, leave us a rating and review. Really does help us move up those charts. Finally, if you're not following, find us on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, 
at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Uh, the YouTube page is blowing up. We're up to almost 2,000 followers there, so thank you for your guys' support there. And finally, um, you know, any questions for the show, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. But with that said, people, no more time to waste. Let's get into the story of the day because, as I said, woke up about 4.30 in the morning Eastern time to catch a flight uh, back to Los Angeles. Get into the air, uh, check my phone on Monday morning as I land in Las Vegas for a changeover, and what do I see? Craziness in the streets, another coaching search in Knoxville as Jeremy Pruitt has been fired as the head coach of the University of Tennessee. Um, And I'll be honest, I don't know that this is really truly surprising. I want to give a quick shout out to my buddy Trey uh, Wallace, who is the one of the radio hosts in Fox Sports Knoxville. Uh, he hosts on Fox Sports Knoxville. Excuse me. He's a good friend of mine. He may actually be coming on this show later this week. And he was the one that really broke this story from the beginning. Uh, he had some good reporting early on, right around the end of the season, that there were some major recruiting violations going on. So that happens. Uh, and, uh, Tennessee launches an internal investigation. They hire an outside lawyer firm. And sure enough, bing, bang, boom, major stuff happens, and Jeremy Pruitt is out. In terms of the details, in terms of what you need to know, uh, a couple things. One, we don't have all the details because, let's be honest, we've all – followed enough NCAA investigations to know that it may be weeks, months, maybe years before we get all the details. But essentially, it all centers around what Trey reported on about six weeks ago, five weeks ago when the regular season ended, which was major recruiting violations at the University of Tennessee. Again, we don't have all the details, but it sounds like some recruits were helped along the way, maybe with some travel stuff on recruiting visits, maybe with uh, hotel accommodations that were not above board, especially on unofficial visits, which are supposed to be paid for out of the student-athlete's pocket. Official visits the school can pay for. Unofficial visits uh, are not allowed to be paid for by the school. But the bottom line remains, uh, some recruiting violations, and it wasn't just a one-off thing, right? I think that's the important thing to realize is that the Tennessee chancellor, the person who runs the university, had a press conference on Monday, and she basically said, one, Tennessee is looking at multiple, multiple level one rules violations, and level one and level two, and also that it was pretty wide-ranging. This wasn't a rogue one assistant coach, but in addition to Jeremy Pruitt, two assistant coaches were fired, uh, a, a couple recruiting staff members, a couple Uh, 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 analysts. So basically, it is very clear that multiple people were working behind the scenes and did illegal stuff, did things that did not, that violated NCAA rules. Um, And listen, we, we argue about NCAA rules all the time, but we know what the rule book is. We know what's allowed. We know what's not allowed. And if you don't follow those NCAA rules, you are going to be punished. And so multiple people were fired. And obviously, a lot of it is going to fall on Jeremy Pruitt, right? You can get away with this if it is one assistant coach, if you can claim that it's rogue, if you can claim that you had nothing to do with it. But when it's we're talking 8, 10, 12 people that were involved. I think it was something like close to 10 at the very least. Uh, it's going to be really hard for a coach to kind of claim that it was an isolated incident um, and that he either had no idea or shouldn't have known. And it certainly doesn't help when you're 16 and 19 
coming off a 3-7 and seven season, but even if he had come off a successful season, I don't think it would have been very easy for him to survive this, but he is out. And in a very interesting note, I also think it's important to note that Philip Fulmer, the former head coach who hired him, has also been fired. Well, he, he quote-unquote retired, but he was basically fired. And so the search for a new athletic director and a new head coach is underway. Before we get into those details, first of all, I just want to say this, man. And I've said this on the show before, but it is another knock on Tennessee football. Um, And it's just crazy to me because if you're a follower of college football, if you're passionate, we have a lot of young people that listen to this show, under 25, under 20, under 30. I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm just telling you right now, it is insane to me to see how far, how fast Tennessee has fallen. When I came up watching college football, I've told this story before, but Tennessee football I started watching college football in the mid-90s. Tennessee football was essentially the equivalent of what like Ohio State or Oklahoma is today. Not quite Alabama, not quite the best of the best, but every single year they were at least in the conversation for the national championship. All those Peyton Manning years, which is when I first started getting into college football, and then of course after that they win a national championship with T. Martin at quarterback. So to see this program falls so far, so fast, so quickly, and into such a deep hole of despair, I just absolutely cannot believe it. So as we look ahead to what's next for Tennessee, it's just going to be fascinating. And it's fascinating for a number of reasons, right? Because if you if you kind of just follow the tea leaves, follow the news, on Monday, the big story is, of course, Jeremy Pruitt being fired. However, I would add that I actually think that is secondary to the fact that Philip Fulmer has resigned as the AD at the University of Tennessee. Why do I bring that up? Why is it important? Well, it's for one very simple reason. You know who hires a football coach? An athletic director. And so while the bigger story is Jeremy Pruitt being fired, who is the next Tennessee football coach, the, 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 the real story is who the heck does Tennessee hire as an athletic director? Because it's going to be impossible to really hire a football coach until you figure out who that football coach is going to be working for. No coach anywhere As good of a job as Tennessee is, and I still think it's a good job, and there's only 14 SEC coaching jobs, and I think every SEC coaching job, except maybe Vandy, has certain advantages um, that other, uh, other schools and other conferences simply don't. Until you get that AD in place, there is no reason for me to think that there will be a head coach in place, and so that is something to monitor when it comes to Tennessee. I think this could be a long, drawn-out process because I don't think that Tennessee is going to have an AD in place for a a, a fair amount of time. And until they have that AD, I find it very hard to hire a head football coach. The question, of course, after that becomes, uh, what kind of coach wants to take this job? Because I think we'll get into kind of candidates and all that stuff in a minute, but I do think it is going to be fascinating to see how you even go about hiring a football coach. Because first of all, I think it goes without saying, right? Any head coach that has a good job is not going to take this job. Not because I don't think Tennessee is good, because I do think it's a good job, but because you just don't know what is coming. As I said a few minutes ago to lead this show, NCAA investigations, first of all, you got to hire an AD, period. So first of all, I don't think it's going to be hard to find a candidate, first of all, because they don't know who they're going to be working for. But on top of that, they don't know what's coming from the NCAA. And as I said a minute ago, it takes time for these NCAA investigations to unfold. So we're not just talking about hiring a football coach. We're talking about hiring a football coach at the very beginning of an NCAA investigation. 
And so you can promise the world to a football coach, but if he has no idea what is coming from the NCAA, I think it is going to be hard to find the right coach to fit this the profile of this job. Um, because what are the violations going to be? How bad is it? What Are, are you going to have scholarship reductions? Are you going to have bowl bans? By the way, are you going to self-impose bowl bans? And by the way, you're not even going to find out what actually happens from the NCA until two or three years down the road. So to, to, so to even begin this conversation, I think it's important to note that, you know, the, whoever is hired is going to be recruiting under an NCA cloud for the next probably two to three years before they even get a, a verification on what happens from the NCAA. And then beyond that, they're going to have to deal with the actual NCA punishment, which again, could be scholarship reductions, could be all that kind of stuff, could be major bowl bans, all that kind of stuff. So with that said, um, it's going to be a fascinating coaching search. And I think the question now becomes like, who are realistic candidates, right? Because I, I, I First of all, it's the last coaching search that we have that we expect to have this offseason, so it's going to be kind of under the the microscope to begin with. It's an SEC job. It's a major program with a lot of history, so everyone's kind of curious as to what is going to happen, but I think it's just going to be fascinating to watch what kind of job, what kind of people are interested, who takes it, and who can and cannot take it. First of all, like I said a minute ago, I do not believe that a, a good coach with a good job at the Power 5 level is going to take it, right? You're, you're not getting somebody from any Power 5 school to come to Tennessee to clean up this mess. I don't even know who would be a candidate under those circumstances, but I don't think you are going to get a person that is at a Power 5 school now to take this job, so you could go ahead and cross those people off the list. The second thing, and this really sucks, and I feel bad for Tennessee fans, but I think when you fire a head coach for NCAA rules violations and you go out and hire a new AD to clean up this mess, I think that because Jeremy Pruitt was fired for NCAA rules violations and not just for being a lousy football coach, which he was, there are certain candidates that I don't think, I don't think you can hire anybody who has a background with NCAA rules violations. Right? I just don't think that you can do it. So Hugh Freeze, who I believe is probably the best candidate for this coaching job and a guy who we know wants this job, he coached high school ball in Tennessee, he started his college coaching career, in, well I think he technically started as like a GA at Ole Miss, but he, he has spent time in Tennessee throughout his adult life. I was told he wants this job, not from him. I know he was on the show. I'm not claiming I have any close relationship with him, but I was told by many people that this was the job that he was coveting. I don't know how you possibly hire him now because he has rules violations dating back to his old Miss days. How do you justify firing Jeremy Pruitt and saying, you know, we can't have you here because you're breaking the rules, and you bring in a coach that was accused of rules violations at Ole Miss, even if, again, I'm not saying he did anything wrong or he was found to do anything wrong, but clearly there were rules that were broken. And so because of that, I don't think you can hire Hugh Freeze as a candidate. I'll take it a step further. I don't think you can hire Lane Kiffin. Now, I don't know if Lane Kiffin would even be interested in coming, but he is a name that I think Tennessee fans, they see how he has evolved as a head coach from his career beginning at Tennessee in college football to now. But I don't know how you can hire Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffin, remember, there were rules violations under Lane Kiffin a decade ago at Tennessee, and so I think he is out of the question. So I think now the, the conversation becomes, okay, who can you realistically get taking out the guys that uh, either have a great job or have NCAA problems in the past? I think there's two types of coaches that come to mind. The first are the group of five guys, right? And it's what I said a minute ago. Um, you know, look, 
there are a lot of good group of five jobs, but there are only 12, there are only 14 SEC jobs, but only about 13, maybe 12, 11 that are worth taking when you, you know, you knock out Vanderbilt and some of the other coaching jobs. And so I think one, is there a group of five guy out there? You know, Jamie Chadwell at Coastal Carolina is coming off an 11 and one regular season, has built the foundation of a solid program there. Grew up right around Knoxville. He's in the next state over in South Carolina. Is he the kind of guy that you go get? Uh, Luke Fickle at Cincinnati, I think he's completely out of the question, but you got to obviously make a phone call to him. Um, and there are obviously some other group of five guys that you might be interested in. Billy Napier, who is at L Louisiana, 11 wins in 2019, 10 wins in 2020. I swear, I've I must be like the head of the Billy Napier fan club because I talk about this guy every single freaking week on this show, and nobody knows anything about him. But when you have back-to-back 10-win -back seasons at the group of five level, he coached under Saban, he coached under Dabo Sweeney, he's going to get one of these big-time jobs eventually but he seems to be very picky about what he is and is not interested in. I don't know if he would be interested in this job, but he's another name to keep an eye on uh, from the group of five pool. Finally, there are, of course, the retread head coaches who are currently unemployed. Um, and those are the guys that I think are, are I don't want to say more or less realistic than the group of five guys, but I think there's a possibility that you could end up with one of them. Is Gus Malzahn interested in this job? And I know Gus Malzahn, you know, we have Auburn fans that listen to this show. People roll their eyes. Gus Malzahn, how could you ever hire Gus Malzahn? I mean, the guy wasn't terrible, right? Like, he won um, a couple SEC uh, West titles. He played for a national championship. He beat Nick Saban a few times, which I do believe is worth mentioning. Um, and he's a guy, listen, I mean, he, he doesn't recruit the same types of players as Alabama, Georgia, et cetera. And so maybe he's the kind of guy that, that with scholarship limitations or under the cloud of NCAA, you know, uh, uncertainty where it's going to be hard to recruit. Maybe he's a guy that you bring in. I'll give you another name that I don't think is terrible. Tom Herman, the former Texas head coach. And look, I know that about three or four episodes ago, I crushed Tom Herman when he was fired at Texas. And if you're a Texas fan, I understand why you wanted this guy gone. As I said, he wasn't great. He wasn't as good as advertised. He wasn't recruiting well in Texas. And there was clearly a disconnect between him and his players. But I think you also have to call a spade a spade. The guy won 10 games one year. They would have gone 8-3 and three this year mid-pandemic. Um, and so it's not as though that he is a terrible candidate. When I say they would have gone eight and three, they went seven and three. Their game against arguably the worst team in the Power Five, Kansas, was knocked off the schedule. And so because of it, is Tom Herman a candidate for the head coaching job here? So I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. But like I said, I do think it's going to take a while before we get any clarity on who is even a candidate for this job because I do think you have to hire an AD first. Two quick thoughts before we get out of here on Tennessee. One, I know it's dark times for Tennessee, and it's frankly been like, what, a dark 15 to 18 years since they've really been relevant in the early 2000s. I don't think this is a bad job, though, right? Like, everyone wants to throw dirt on Tennessee. Oh, they'll never be good again. Let me just tell you this. Brian Kelly has flipped my head on who will be good and who will not be good in college football going forward, right? Because I was told for 20 years that Notre Dame will never be relevant again nationally. And you can argue, yeah, they don't beat Alabama, they don't beat Clemson at full strength, whatever. But Brian Kelly is the perfect coach for Notre Dame, and he has them in the national championship hunt year in and year out. If you can win at Notre Dame, 
with those recruiting restrictions, with the academic restrictions, with the fact that you're in the middle of nowhere, small Catholic school. If you can win at Notre Dame and build a national championship contender, you can do it at Tennessee at a school that is a three-hour drive to Atlanta, a three-hour drive to Charlotte, a three-hour drive to all over South Carolina where there are a number of quality recruits. Same with the Nashville area. If you can build a national championship contender at Notre Dame, you can build one at Tennessee. It's just going to take the right guy, and whether they get that guy or not, I don't know. It remains to be seen, but the bottom line is that it can be done. That is my first thought. My second thought is there's a lot of national media members taking a victory lap because they were pushing for Shiano three years ago when Jeremy Pruitt got hired. What I would say is just stop. Just stop with that. Look, two things in life. I, I say it all the time, but I think it's an important life lesson for all of us. Life is not an either-or proposition in most cases, right? Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a rom-com, right? I, I chose the wrong girl, and I let the right girl get away. That, that's not how life works. And so I saw a lot of national media members, you know who they are, uh, taking victory laps. Oh, we told you, you dumb Tennessee fans. You thought you were so smart because you didn't want Greg Schiano there. Well, no, stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Clearly, Jeremy Pruitt was not the right hire. It's not debatable at this point. But this idea that somehow national media members are taking a victory lap over Greg Schiano is ridiculous. This guy is a New Jersey guy. He's going to do well at Rutgers, but he was never going to make it in the SEC, and he was never going to make it in the SEC East every single year when he had to recruit against Nick Saban, when he had to recruit against Kirby Smart, when he had to recruit against Dan Mullen, uh, who was already in, who was hired at Florida the same year as Jeremy Pruitt. It was never going to happen. So stop with the Greg Schiano crap. Two things in life can be true. It's not necessarily if you ha if you hire this guy, you should have hired that guy. No. Greg, Greg Schiano would have been a disaster. I don't know if there would have been NCAA violations, but the bottom line is Schiano would have been a disaster. Pruitt was a disaster. But one does not equate to the other. And that's it on Tennessee for now. We'll obviously be talking about them plenty more over the coming weeks. Because uh, they're going to lose a lot. They're going to lose a lot of recruits. They're going to lose a lot of players. They're going to have to figure out their coach. They're going to have to figure out their AD. So we'll talk Tennessee more. I'm going to try to get Trey, Trey Wallace on this show. But stay tuned for all that because there is plenty more to discuss with Tennessee. Uh, all right, let's transition to what I believe is the other big topic in football since I last spoke with you. I do hope everybody had a great weekend. That is, of course, Urban Meyer signing with the Jacksonville Jaguars. We've Talked about Urban Meyer a lot this offseason, first with the potential Texas opening, now with the Jacksonville Jaguars. And again, I know this story is three, four, five days old, but I got a lot of DMs, a lot of tweets, whatever. What do you think, Torres? You think it's going to work? You think he's going to make it? Uh, so let's talk about Urban Meyer really quick. And, you know, I think what I would just start by saying is that I, I just think it's going to be fascinating to watch, right? Uh, nobody knows. Look, we thought Jim Harbaugh was going to be the savior at Michigan. It's been a disaster. We thought, um, you know, on the flip side, how does Ohio State replace uh, uh, Urban Meyer with a guy that's never coached a game of college football before? Uh, Ryan Day's been awesome. And so you never know in life what is going to work and what isn't. But I just think it's going to be fascinating. I think it's going to be fascinating for a couple reasons. And, and, and first of all, I just think it's going to be fascinating from Urban Meyer's perspective. I mean, I don't ever remember a circumstance quite like Urban Meyer to the Jacksonville Jaguars. First of all, I would say this. It doesn't appear as though, I, I, I never thought that Urban Meyer would never coach football again, 
But I did say after he turned down the Texas job or turned down at least interest in the Texas job, I thought it might be realistic. And so when this popped up, I think it's important to note Urban Meyer to Jacksonville is not like Urban Meyer was like pursuing NFL jobs. I think it had to be the perfect spot, the perfect situation. He wasn't going to the NFL to try this NFL stuff, uh, to be the head coach of the Detroit Lions or be the head coach of the, the, the New York Jets and not know what the future held there. He was going to go to the perfect situation, and I do think this is just about a perfect situation for him. Number one pick, Trevor Lawrence, generational uh, uh, quarterback, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, Florida, an area of the country that he's familiar with, he's lived in, his wife was willing to live in. Uh, again, I, I don't think he was taking the Detroit Lions job. Uh, I don't think if the Minnesota Vikings opened up that he was running up to Minnesota uh, to, to be their head coach. And I'm, I just use Minnesota as an example because it had to be the right spot where his wife would be happy. It had to be the right spot where he thought he could win. Um, so it's going to be fascinating from that perspective. I don't think Urban Meyer was pursuing NFL opportunities as much as one fell into his lap. The second reason it's going to be fascinating, this is really the first case in I think most of our lives as football fans where you have a really successful college head coach that has literally zero NFL experience, right? And like I've seen a lot of these analogies to this guy or to that, well, Pete Carroll's winning. Pete Carroll had been a head coach in the NFL twice and got fired before he went to USC, then ultimately back to the Seahawks. Nick Saban had been an assistant multiple times in the NFL before um, he got the opportunity with the Dolphins, obviously coming from LSU. Uh, even somebody like Matt Rule last year, he had been an assistant in the NFL before he took a head coaching job with the Carolina Panthers. And so Urban Meyer, really the only analogy I can come up with, and maybe there's another one that you guys know that I'm not thinking of, the closest thing that I can come up with is Jimmy Johnson going from University of Miami in the late 80s to the Dallas Cowboys. That is a long time ago. Like I said, we have people under 40 that don't remember Jimmy Johnson as a college football head coach. And so for those reasons, I think it is going to be fascinating. Now, the bigger question is, is it going to work? And I do think it's going to work. I think it's going to work for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, you got Trevor Lawrence, right? And, and like, we're doing this thing now because we do this in the media and as fans and as consumers of sports, where we're trying to like talk ourselves out of Trevor Lawrence. Well, he wasn't great against Ohio State. And what could Justin Fields? I mean, Urban Meyer knows Justin Fields. Stop it. Trevor Lawrence is about as safe of a bet as a number one pick as I've ever seen in my life. First of all, you've seen him, you've watched him. Six foot six, huge arm, runs really well, tough, not afraid to put his shoulder down, great leader, all that stuff. Um, it, it, when I think about Trevor Lawrence, I, I'll, I'll take it a step further. Like, he's such a lock. Like, like I've heard Colin Cowherd say this, but like, we've, we've stopped debating who's going to be the number one pick in this draft for the most part, right up until the last week or so with Justin Fields. But like, we stopped this debate two or three years ago, right? We, we think about all these great quarterback prospects. Joe Burrow! Joe Burrow was literally undraftable the year before he won the Heisman, the year before he went number one overall. He threw, he went from 15 touchdown passes and eight interceptions as a redshirt junior to 50 touchdown passes as a senior. So like, like, like Kyler Murray, we thought until two weeks before he declared, was going to be a professional baseball player. Baker Mayfield was a former walk-on. So you think about all these quarterback prospects, none of them come even close to the pedigree of Trevor Lawrence. And so I think that's the first reason why Urban Meyer is going to be successful. He's got a chance to draft a franchise quarterback. But I think the second reason, I think it's an important reason. I think Urban Meyer, as stern and tough and, and you know, kind of... Uh, um, 
you know, larger than life as he is, my understanding for people who have spent time around him is one, he's really smart, and two, he's really adaptable, and he likes to surround himself with smart people. And I think that's an important point um, in, in, in any walk of life, but certainly in this particular situation. Urban Meyer does not know the NFL. And I think it's very smart of him that he is going appearing to put together a staff that includes mostly guys that have been around the NFL. I even saw he hired Charlie Strong, his former defensive coordinator at Florida, who at least had spent some time in the NFL uh, throughout his years as an assistant coach. And so, uh, you know, I think he's really adaptable. I think he's willing to learn. Um, and I think he is going to, to hire smart people around him. And when I say he's adaptable, I think you can even take it back to Ohio State, right? Zach Smith, his former assistant coach, was on this show a few weeks ago, and he was talking about it, is that there are certain coaches that as they get older, I've been doing it this way forever. I'm not changing. You guys adapt to me. That's why Les Miles isn't the head coach at LSU anymore, because he would not and could not adapt uh, to the modern era of college football. And it's why, by the way, he's probably going to be out in Kansas in two or three years. He just has never developed an offense that looks like something that is in the 21st century. I'm going to talk about John Calipari later. I'm starting to wonder if he is able or willing to adapt to modern college basketball in 2021. So there's a lot of guys that just won't adapt as they get older. But Urban Meyer is almost the exact opposite. You know, Zach, Zach Smith brought up the other day. But as he got older, he realized the, the, the smartest thing he ever did was uh, he realized what he didn't know. He realized what his limitations were, and he hired smart people to supplement it, right? That 2015 team, that return, they won a national championship. They returned everybody, but the next year they couldn't score. They had Zeke Elliott, Michael Thomas, Cardio. They couldn't put up points. And so what did Urban Meyer do? He went out. He hired Ryan Day. Ryan Day came in, changed the offense. A couple years later, they're competing for national championships. A couple years later, Ryan Day takes over as the head coach. Back-to-back -back Big Ten titles, college football playoff appearances, I believe four to five straight conference titles, even if there isn't a national championship in that stretch. Uh, so this is a guy that is willing to adapt. This guy is a guy that is willing to hire smart people that, that may know stuff that he doesn't. And I do think he's going to be the CEO. I don't think he's going to be calling plays, right? He's not going to be sitting there with his play sheet staring at it. I think he's going to be a CEO. I think he's going to defer, and I think he's going to hire smart people around him. And I think that leads to kind of the final question is, like, like, how is he going to do in the big picture, right? I think the first thing is, look, we know Urban Meyer's track record. I'm not here to pick it apart and, oh, he left this place under controversy. But, but like, he's not going to be there forever. He's intense. He's, he's, he, he is the most probably the most intensely competitive person that many people say they've ever been around. I'll tell you a quick story uh, before we get to some hoops here in a minute, is that 2017, I believe, national championship, uh, college football playoff, it was the fall of 2016, I believe, Ohio State makes the college football playoff, that was the year they did not win um, the Big Ten, but still made it in as an at-large team, they play Clemson in Phoenix, I am at that game covering that game for FoxSports.com. And Ohio State loses 31 to nothing. That was the year that Clemson won the national championship with Deshaun Watson. They fought back, got into the playoff, win the national championship. But in the semifinal, they beat Ohio State 31 to nothing. And I'm telling you, Urban Meyer at that podium, I have never seen a human being more dejected, more defeated than Urban Meyer after that game. Trust me, I've been to Final Fours. I've been to all sorts of stuff. I've been in all sorts of big games, Elite Eights, games that knock you out of the NCAA tournament. 
I've never seen a human being. I, I, I can't even describe. It was like he literally had, uh, I don't even want to make a bad analogy, but it was just like, 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 like his whole life had been taken away, like his family had died or something. I don't, I don't want to wish that upon anybody, but you get the point. I've never seen anybody so defeated as Urban Meyer was that night. So he's intensely competitive. He has health issues. And so when people ask me how he's going to be like, I think it'll be good. I just don't think it's going to be for a long time, right? Gets to Florida, wins a national championship in year two. By year five, he's basically done. Comes back for one more season. Year six, he's done. Uh, and then at Ohio State, wins a national championship year three. Ends up in year seven. But the program had kind of flatlined. And he was clearly burned out by the end. And so when I talk about Urban Meyer in the NFL, like, I think it's going to be really good. I think the division is winnable. The Colts are going through, uh, you know, some changes. The Titans are fine, but the Titans aren't some juggernaut that's unbeatable. And, of course, the Texans are all sorts of turmoil. We don't even know if they're going to have Deshaun Jackson going forward, or Deshaun Jackson, Deshaun Watson going forward. Uh, and so when I look at Urban Meyer, like, I think he's going to be really successful. I think he's going uh, to make a few playoffs. Maybe if everything goes right, goes to a Super Bowl. Uh, but I don't think he's going to be there very long. I think he's going to be there five, six, seven years. I think he'll have a ton of success. And then I think he'll leave because that's how Urban Meyer is. And at 56 years old, he's not taking this job to be there for 15 or 20 years. Not that anybody but Bill Belichick really lasts anywhere but 15 or 20 years either. The one thing I will say, though, even if he only stays five or six years, guess what? He's Urban freaking Meyer. And I think two very important things are going to happen simply by be him being the head coach of this program or this, this organization. One, he instantaneously makes the Jacksonville Jaguars relevant, right? Like, I was watching kind of bits and pieces of the press conference when I was home over the weekend, and, like, Jacksonville is relevant. Like, I'm, not, I'm not even a huge NFL guy. Now, I watch all the games, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, all that stuff. But, like, Jacksonville is all of a sudden really interesting, right? Don't you have to tune in to basically every Jacksonville game now because of Trevor Lawrence and because of her Meyer? They are all of a sudden cool in a way that the Jaguars have maybe never been cool since their organization came about 20-whatever years ago. So that's one. And two, Urban Meyer's a really good coach, and he's a really successful coach. And I think even if he does only last five or six years, I do think he is going to take them to a level that whoever he hands it off to to the next person is going to be able to sustain it, and they're going to be a relevant franchise here for the next 8, 10, 12, 15 years as long as Trevor Lawrence is healthy. So to me, it's going to be fascinating. There's other variables. He's got to hire smart people in the front office. I don't think he's a, a number cruncher. I, think he, I don't think he's a salary cap guru, but I think Urban Meyer is going to be really good. I just don't think it's going to be a 10, 12, 15-year commitment as much as it is five, six, seven years, full speed ahead, couple playoff appearances, maybe a Super Bowl, uh, and, and then he'll probably burn out like he does uh, at some other places. All right, I think that's it for uh, this segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Love your guys' support, uh, and thanks for, for everything. Um, you know, obviously the show, we're doing great. Thanks for your patience, as I said a few days ago with the Sean Farnham interview, or a few minutes ago with the Sean Farnham interview. Uh, but we're back now. AT's back in California. I'm not going anywhere uh, until after the college hoop season, so it's going to be a fun few weeks in this show we actually got a few guests lined up here for the coming days um, and it's just gonna be fun it's a fun time of year you guys know I love doing this and I love your support uh, but that's all for this segment I do want to talk some college hoops Baylor Kansas was Monday night uh, some other stuff from the weekend including Kentucky which I'm so tired of talking about but you got to do what you got to do right I will be back we'll talk some college hoops but I will be back momentarily All right, everybody, uh, I am back, and uh, yeah, shout out to Tennessee.
cannot believe that we are still talking college football coaching carousel here in the middle of January, yet here we are. It's always something with Tennessee, and uh, we'll continue to cover that story as, uh, as time goes on, and obviously any interesting Urban Meyer news we'll cover on this show, but I do want to talk about some basketball, and it, it, it's kind of wild, right, because you guys know me. I, I talk a ton of college hoops basically every single episode all year long. Summertime, we'll talk transfers, draft, all that stuff. Um, but it's been a few episodes since I really kind of broke down college hoops because of the fact that last week I was traveling, did the Sean Farnham interview, but there wasn't a bunch of commentary. And so let's go over some of the things that have happened uh, in college hoops since I last spoke to you. Some of it we've already talked about, right? I told you two weeks ago, Alabama might be the best team in the SEC. Well, what do they do? They go steamroll Kentucky at Rupp Arena, steamroll Arkansas at home. And now I don't think anybody's really having that debate. I don't really know what to tell you about Alabama because I told you about it two weeks ago. This is the best team in the SEC right now. Tennessee may eventually catch them. Somebody else may eventually catch them, but they are the best team right now. And I would argue this. Not only are they the best team in the SEC, they're playing like one of the five to seven best teams in college basketball. Now, I'm not saying they should be ranked in the top five, ranked in the top 10 based on the totality of their season. But what I am saying is when you talk about teams right now, there are not five teams in college basketball playing better than Alabama, who has, uh, uh, excuse me, has the last, uh, what was it, all their SEC, they're winning their SEC games by an average of 15 points. So Alabama is rolling. I told you they were good, but I think they've even exceeded my expectations as they get set for a major game on Tuesday night at LSU. Uh, also, we talked a lot about Michigan in previous episodes. Michigan did take their first loss of the season. We'll talk about that momentarily. Not too worried about it. But I do want to get to what I think is the team of the week. Uh, we'll also talk about Kentucky, by the way, uh, at the end of the segment. But I do want to talk about probably the most interesting team since I last recorded a segment on College Hoops, and that is the Baylor Bears. The Baylor Bears are awesome. Not sure if you heard. They're really, really, really good, though. And since I last recorded, uh, two very dominant, convincing wins. They've played two top 15 teams. They beat Texas Tech by eight at Texas Tech. Not too bad, especially with Texas Tech coming off that win over Texas last week that I was able to watch while I was traveling. And oh, by the way, they then on Monday night beat Kansas by uh, eight in a game that was really 11. Kansas hit a three at the buzzer to cut the lead to eight. I feel awful for all of you who had Baylor minus nine because Kansas did cover, but Baylor wins. And so let's talk about the Bears because I do think there has been this kind of conversation that it's Gonzaga one, Baylor two, everybody else three. And while I am not ready yet to say definitively that I think that Baylor is better than Gonzaga, I think it's time that we probably start having that conversation. And at the very least, if we don't say that Baylor is better than Gonzaga, and again, I don't even know that I believe it at this moment in time, but even if we're not ready to say that Baylor is better than Gonzaga, I think one thing is definitively clear. I think the gap between Gonzaga at number one and Baylor at number two is smaller than the gap between Baylor at number two and whoever you have at number three, whether it is Michigan, Tennessee, uh, Texas, whoever, Iowa, who's actually playing really well, on and on and on and on and on. And so when I look at Baylor, I think it's just time to start giving them some respect because, you know, this was a team, and we'll talk about in a minute all the cancellations that they had, but really has been kind of off the radar for a team that has been as dominant as Baylor has been all season. And they have, in fact, been dominant with Monday night's win over Kansas. They improved to 13-0. and And how about this? 
all 13 wins by at least eight points, which is no small deal because they've beat, already beaten a bunch of teams that are really, really, really good. Uh, and I would say at least four that are shoe-ins to be in the NCAA tournament. Kansas, who's ranked in the top 10. Texas Tech, who's in the top 15. Oklahoma, who's going to be a tournament team. And Illinois in the out of conference. So they've won all those games by at least eight points. Um, and I think it is worth mentioning, as I just said a minute ago, uh, their schedule should be even more impressive, right? No team has had more games canceled, more marquee games anyway, canceled because of COVID than Baylor. So when I talk about them as 13-0 and with all these dominant wins, that's after the fact that they were supposed to play at that Mohegan Sun event and play Villanova, who's a now a top five team, and Arizona State, who was ranked in the top 25 at the time. They were supposed to play... Texas and West Virginia already in the Big 12. Both those games canceled because of COVID. And, of course, they were supposed to play Gonzaga, who uh, is, oh, oh, by the way, number one team in the country. That game also canceled because of COVID. So Baylor, um, a little bit under the radar in large part because they've now had, how about this, four teams, uh, four games against teams currently ranked in the top 15 canceled because of COVID. Three games against teams that are currently ranked in the top five that have been canceled because of COVID with Gonzaga at number one, Villanova at number three, Texas at number five, and oh, by the way, Baylor's at number two. So just an insane, insane, insane stretch. But when I look at Baylor, I do think it is time to start having that conversation. Are they, are they nipping on the heels of Gonzaga? Because I think they are, and I'll tell you why. I think that they are probably... I don't think they're the most talented team offensively in college basketball. That is Gonzaga. But I do think they are the most balanced team in college basketball and a team that is committed on both ends of the court, right? When you look at Gonzaga, look, I love Gonzaga. I have hyped Gonzaga as much as anybody this year. But when you look at Gonzaga, Gonzaga plays a style where it's basically they just want to outscore you. They just want to constantly outscore you. They want to fast break. They want to run. They want to score. They want to put the ball in the basket. They're not nearly as committed on the defensive end as some other teams in college basketball, including Baylor. And I think it's starting to catch up with Gonzaga as they've now gotten into conference play, teams that might not be as talented as them but are familiar with what they do, familiar with how they play, and all those kind of things. Last two wins have been by, you know, I don't want to say low-scoring margins, but they were only up by four the other day against Pepperdine at halftime. They were down double digits against St. Mary's on Saturday in the first half before coming back to win convincingly. And when I look at Gonzaga, I do th I just don't know that they're committed to playing on the defensive end. Now, in the end, they might be so good offensively that it doesn't matter. I actually heard Jay Billis make an interesting analogy. He basically said that Gonzaga reminds him of the, the final Tyler Hansborough team at North Carolina, which won the 2009 National Championship. And for people who don't remember all those details, I don't blame you. It was 12 years ago now. But that team had Tyler Hansborough, Danny Green, who's still in the NBA, Wayne Ellington, Ty Lawson. They just they basically outscored everybody. And Jay Billis kind of said something to the effect that, you know, Roy Williams would get frustrated during the course of the season that they weren't as committed on the defensive end, but they were so dominant offensively that it didn't matter. And Gonzaga may be at that place, but I do think that it might come back to nip them in the butt at some point in the season that they are not as committed on the defensive end. Baylor, on the other hand, and this is a Baylor segment, um, Baylor's the exact opposite. First of all, Baylor is crazy explosive offensively. Came into Monday night's game averaging 87 points per game. That is sixth best in college basketball. That is definitely nothing to scoff at. Uh, you know, like I said, it's not necessarily the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Gonzaga 
Bulldogs putting up the numbers that they're putting up. But when you talk about Baylor, when you talk about uh, putting up 87 points per game, especially now six, seven games into conference play, that ain't a bad number. What I also think is crazy about Baylor, they shoot the three ball absurdly well, again, especially relative to the competition. So far this season, they have six players who are averaging at least eight and a half points per game, and their top five scorers are all shooting at least 39% from three, which is insane, right? 40% from three is like a really good three-point shooter. Baylor's top five scorers all shoot at least four, 39% from three. Four of the five shoot over 40% from three. And it's not as though they're not taking a lot of threes. All five of those guys average at least two three-point attempts a game. So we're talking about just an elite shooting team that can get scoring from all five spots on the floor. But the thing that I love about Baylor, beyond the fact that they are so explosive offensively, is that they're equally as committed on the defensive end. And I do think you saw that on, on Monday night against Kansas. I know that there were some some issues at certain points and there were some lulls and there were some moments where Baylor wasn't spectacular. But if you watch that game, what you saw is a Baylor squad that when they need to clamp down, they really can. And it's tough to really tell what their um, what their defensive statistics are because of the fact that they've beaten so many teams so badly that their field goal percentage defense, their scoring defense maybe is a little bit higher than people realize just because of the fact that, again, they've had so many blowouts. But the two stats that stand out to me, and they are reflected if you watch them, currently ranked in the top 10 nationally in turnovers forced with close to 19 per game coming into that Kansas game. Um, and they're sixth in the country in steals per game with just under nine, uh, somewhere around the nine area. I lost the stat here. I can't find it off the top of my head. But, uh, you know, they, they, they just put so much pressure on you defensively and create so much chaos. And, oh, by the way, that's exactly what they did on Monday night against a really good Kansas team, forced 15 turnovers and had 10 steals as a team. And so when we start talking about Baylor in the bigger picture, again, I'm not saying that I'm ready to say that they're better than Gonzaga. First of all, by the way, I will say this. If you missed the Sean Farnham interview on Thursday, go back and listen, because Sean Farnham said something that Fran Fraschilla has said and that Jay Billis and Dan Schulman now said on Monday night's broadcast between Kansas and Baylor, which is that Kansas or that Baylor is still trying to get Gonzaga on the schedule. And I don't know if it'll happen. And there's all these issues with the Big 12 schedule and games getting rescheduled, so maybe it won't happen. But I wouldn't put to bed the idea that Baylor plays Gonzaga at some point during this regular season. And I hope it happens because I think it'd be good for both programs. And I think it'd be great for college basketball. But when I look at Baylor, I just think it's time, like, like, it's time to get them out of the shadows, right? Like, it just feels like we've talked so much Gonzaga, and then we've talked so much in some of these other programs, whether it's Duke being bad, whether it's Kentucky being bad, whether it's North Carolina not being up to expectations, Michigan State, Indiana, whoever, that I do think we're just sleeping on how dominant and how good Baylor is. Not saying that just yet that I'm ready to say that they are better than Gonzaga, but again, I am just so impressed by this team, and I do think in addition to being the most balanced team I think they're maybe the one with the fewest weaknesses right great guard play probably the deepest backcourt in college basketball right up there with Gonzaga uh, the front court has been incredible they lost Freddie Gillespie I've talked about it all preseason I worried about their ability to get production in the front court well Flo Thamba who's a backup has been awesome and then they got the kid JTT who I'm not even going to try to say his name Chama Chachwa I can't I don't know Jonathan Chama Chachwa I don't know the point being 
They're awesome in the front court. They shoot threes, and they play defense. Gonzaga might be better right now, but Baylor is the most balanced team in college basketball, and I just want to put it out there. I don't think it's inconceivable to argue that Baylor is actually better than Gonzaga. I hope we get to see them on the court, but even if we don't, uh, I, I just think they're an incre- I just think it's an incredible team, and I really do hope both of these teams get deep into the tournament, get a chance to play each other late, hopefully in the Final Four, where we would see a heck of a game. Outside of Baylor, uh, you know, there have been some other topics from across college hoops over the last couple weeks uh, or last couple days, really, since I last recorded. One, as I mentioned, Michigan lost. But look, I'm not ready to uh, spend a ton of time breaking it down. It was the second time they had played Minnesota in a couple weeks. Minnesota got smoked when they played in Ann Arbor. And I thought it was just one of those deals where when you play everybody twice in conference play, they know you, you know them. Uh, and Michigan had, Michigan, Mich- Minnesota excuse me, had a little chip on their shoulder. I'm not ready to freak out about Michigan. I still think they're awesome. Um, what else? Alabama, I mentioned, just steamrolled Kentucky, steamrolled Alabama or steamrolled Arkansas, they are awesome. Arkansas themselves has a lot of issues that they got to get figured out. Um, Iowa, by the way, is playing really well. I think they've won five straight now, four by at least 15-plus points. I know they have Luka Garza, but I think people are sleeping on how well that team is playing. Um, And maybe really right now the biggest story outside of Gonzaga Baylor is the Blue Bloods where North Carolina lost over the weekend to Florida State. They are now 8-5, and 3-3 in the ACC. And look, I think they're going to be a tournament team, but they're clearly not as good as we expected, clearly struggling more than we anticipated. Duke coming off a loss to Virginia Tech. They fall out of the top 25. And oh, by the way, of course, there is Kentucky now 4-8 after losing at Auburn by 7 points. And in kind of an incredible fact... Uh, with those three teams all losing this weekend, they all fall out of the top 25. This is the first time since 1961, 1961, if I read this stat correctly, that North Carolina, Duke, and Kentucky are all out of the top 25 all at the same time, which speaks to the fact um, that this is really a quirky college basketball season. I think one of the reasons that maybe it feels like there's not as much juice in this sport this year is because Gonzaga and Baylor are so good at the top and Kentucky, Duke, and North Carolina are struggling in the middle to the bottom. And those are kind of the programs that casual fans kind of wrap their arms around, feel like they have to watch. And not only are the three of them not only not watch, they're not only not teams that you have to see this year, they're basically unwatchable. Um, And so with that, I do want to wrap on Kentucky. And yes, I know I'm talking about them again. I know it gets exhausting if you're not a Kentucky fan. But listen, as I've said many times, they are Michigan football of college basketball. Every week, I think I can put them in the rearview mirror. I think I can put it past us. I think I can stop talking about them. And then they do something either really good like last week against Florida or really bad like the two losses since to Alabama and Auburn. Uh, And you got to talk about them. And so let's get into Kentucky, where they did lose to Auburn. Final score was 66-59. But again, that's not really the story, right? I don't break down box scores. I break down the story behind the story. And the story behind the story is, you know, I don't really know what John Calipari is doing, okay? And before we get into it, let me do the disclaimer. Two things can be true at the same time. Just talked about it with Tennessee. Just talked about it with, with everything that I talk about. Two things can be true at the same time. One, John Calipari is a freaking Hall of Famer. He's great at what he does. Like, let's stop with he's on the hot seat. Let's stop with he doesn't know what he's doing. No, he's awesome. 
He won the SEC last year. I believe he will win SEC championships in his future. But while it is true that he is a legend, it is true that he is great, it is also true that this is by far his the worst coaching that I have ever seen from John Calipari. And I do understand to some degree why he would struggle in this season where there is COVID, where there are fewer practices, where there are, are no exhibitions, where there were none of those games early in the season to get things right. But when you watch that Auburn game on Saturday, a couple things stood out. First of all, he has just no idea how to play players together. The lineups were a mess. I mean, you at some points had three big guys. None of them can shoot on the floor at the same time. In college basketball in 2021, you cannot play like that. Just ask Baylor, who, as I just said a minute ago, has four of their top five scores all shooting over 40% from three. Kentucky, meanwhile, is playing three big guys that can't shoot. You can't do that. But more important than anything else, and this is the frustration of Kentucky fans, and I know it because I tweeted about it and you guys responded in droves. The frustration is very simply this. John Calipari is not playing the players that help him win games. And it is so frustrating to watch, and it is so it like makes me pull my hair out. I'm not even a freaking Kentucky fan. So let's get into what happened on all, at Auburn specific on Saturday where there were two players I felt like who were largely helping Kentucky win the game early. One was Dante Allen, the kid that I've talked about again and again and again and again and again. 2019, Mr. Kentucky in the state of basketball. He is the kid who came off the bench, 23 points against Mississippi State, and essentially is Kentucky's only elite three-point shooter. He was awesome in the first half. Kentucky takes a lead, and what does John Calipari do? He sits him for seven minutes to start the second half, Kentucky loses that lead. I believe they were still up by one when he entered the game. Apparently, Kentucky ran a few plays for him. He didn't shoot. Calipari pulls him again. And the rest of the game is a tug of war back and forth. Put him in, pull him out, put him in, pull him out, put him in, pull him out. Uh, Also, Jacob Toppin, Obi Toppin's brother, same kind of deal. Was awesome in the first half, played a little bit more in the second half. But the bottom line remains very simply this. John Calipari, this team is now 4-8 and overall. And what remains insanely frustrating is not only does John Calipari, has, not, has he not figured out his lineups, John Calipari isn't playing his best players. He's not playing the players that help him win, and I understand the frustration from Kentucky's fan base. And whether it's true or not, what it appears to be is what I have talked about on this show in the past and what I have talked about and what I tweeted about on Saturday. It appears as though he is giving preferential treatment to the players who appear to be higher on NBA draft boards than the backups and the role players and the guys who came to Kentucky as quote-unquote under-recruited, unheralded, etc. Specifically, and you guys know I hate to do this, but there is one kid who seems to continue to be playing when frankly there isn't a ton of reason to continue to play him. That is BJ Boston. He is the 6'7 freshman from Sierra Canyon in LA. I saw him play a ton in high school. He was awesome in high school, but he has been abysmal at Kentucky. And in a weird year where you're getting such little production from so few players, Calipari continues to bury these good players on the bench and continues to play guys like B.J. Boston going forward. And so on the one hand, like I'll again defend Calipari. I get it. There's a lot of pressure. When you bring in these high-profile recruits, you got to play them, right? And you got to play them, and you not only got to play them, but you got to have success with them because that breeds the next opportunity to bring in the next five-star and the next opportunity to bring in the next five-star. And you get pressure from parents and AAU coaches and outside influences. Oh, you got to play them. Because if you don't if you don't get them to the NBA, if they're not lottery picks like they're projected, then it falls on you and you struggle to get that next guy. 
I get that. I get that that pressure is real. What I would also say to that, and this is what I tweeted, and some Kentucky people in Kentucky basketball got mad at me for tweeting it, but it's the truth. John Calipari's job is not to develop NBA players. John Calipari's job is to win games at the University of Kentucky. And through the first 11 years of his regime, he has been able to win at the highest level while also producing NBA players. And it's been a great symbiotic thing, right? You just uh, put out these elite, elite, elite NBA talents, and we know who they are. De'Aaron Fox, Jamal Murray, John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, Anthony Davis, Tyler Hero, P.J. Washington. But you win at the highest level as well. In Cal Perry's defense, most Final Fours, most Elite Eights, most NCAA tournament wins since he got to Kentucky. But the problem is this year is not happening. And this year, the system, the formula of playing the elite players, developing them, and getting them to the next level is not working. And what is working is playing the guys who are not quote-unquote NBA prospects, who are not quote-unquote highly ranked, who were not McDonald's All-Americans, and it is frustrating the heck out of Kentucky fans. And so I don't want to say I don't know what the answer is because the answer is very clearly you play the players who help you win. But I do think Calipari to a degree is at a crossroads this season specifically because I do think that the system that he has implemented is simply not working. And I do think it's frustrating and I do think it's fair to say and I do think even as an outsider I can see that he is not playing the players that help him win games. And the more frustrating part is he continues to make up these bogus, weird quotes to defend his actions. On Saturday, he said something about, I don't want to rip these kids' hearts out by not playing them. He was referencing B.J. Boston, the freshman who is not good enough right now. Well, guess what? You know what it's doing? It's doing two things. One, it's tearing apart the locker room. And two, it's actually doing nothing to help the actual player. First of all, in the terms of the tearing apart the locker room, the, the Jacob Toppin, the kid I just mentioned, Obi Toppin's brother, he said it after the game. He goes, we're not playing winning basketball right now. We're not playing team basketball right now. Everybody's doing their own thing. And I don't blame guys because why would you not do your own thing? Because, you know, if you're having success, but you're not the right player, you're going to get pulled anyway. And, you know, if you're if you're the right player and you're not playing well, then you're not going to get pulled regardless. So that's one. Beyond that, I would also say Calipari, it's not doing anything to help the actual kid, in this case, B.J. Boston. One, all it does is put more pressure on him. Two, it makes it, it makes it the expectation that no matter what he does, he can do no wrong and he will continue to play. And three, it's doing nothing to help his draft stock. You're trying to boost his draft stock, it's only making it worse. Sam Vecini from The Athletic, who I think is as good at the NBA draft stuff as anybody that I've ever seen, he basically said on Saturday, like, look, B.J. Boston's off my draft board. I want to take him in the top 40, and if he declares, yeah, he might go to the G League, but he's so small and so unproductive, so skinny and so unproductive, that he's going to get torn apart in the G League. So now you have a no-win scenario where the guys that are helping you produce aren't happy, nobody's happy in the locker room because the team isn't playing well, and the guys that you're trying to develop they're, they only have more pressure. And, a lot, and I don't blame B.J. Boston because he is in a scenario where he's just trying to produce when he's in, but he is having too much put on his shoulders because Calipari continues to play him again and again and again and again and again. And so when I look at this season with Kentucky, I think two things. I think in the smaller picture, I hate to say it, but I think the season's kind of over, right? They're 4-8 and eight right now. Um, and, and you look at, by the way, their next three games are brutal. Their next three games might actually be the toughest three-game stretch they've had all year. 
Well, three of the next four, I should say. They play Georgia on Wednesday, but then they play at L- they play LSU at home on Saturday. LSU is the second best team in the SEC. Then they play Bama again at Bama, and then they play Texas, who's a top five team in the Big Twelve SEC Challenge. So you, even if you beat Georgia, right, that brings you to five and eight. And then let's say in a best case scenario, in in, in a the stars align scenario, you go two and one over that three game stretch. That's LSU at Alabama. Texas at home. I don't think that's going to happen, but let's play that scenario. Two and one. After five and eight, that brings you to what? Seven and eight overall, if my math is correct. You still have two games with Tennessee after that. You still have a game with Florida. You still have a game with Arkansas. You still have a game with Auburn that just beats you. You still have a game with Missouri. So you're talking about coming out of that stretch, whatever, seven and eight, and you still got, like I said, two with Tennessee. One with Arkansas, one with Auburn, one with Florida, plus an SEC tournament. I just don't know where the wins are going to be had. So I think in the smaller picture, I just don't think it's going to happen. I think Auburn was the game you had to win. If you win that Auburn game, then you feel good against just about all the other teams in the SEC except maybe Alabama, maybe Tennessee. But now you lose that game, and it's just hard to see the scenario where you're going to pick up enough wins with the schedule you have left to actually make a real run. But I also think in the bigger picture, I think we're kind of at a crossroads for this this moment in time with the Calipari era. And again, he's a Hall of Famer. I actually think he is going to be okay. First of all, enough with the hot seat, enough with the game has passed him by. I think he'll be fine, okay? I think he'll be fine. I think this is a weird year, and I think this year is harder than ever to build team chemistry and team camaraderie. And if you have a bunch of pieces that have never played together, it makes it even harder. But what I would also say beyond that is... You know, I think we're at a crossroads here because I've said it before and I'll say it again. The system only works if your five-star freshmen play like five-star freshmen. And as time goes on and as fewer of these guys go to college and as the ones that do go to college go to different places, Cade Cunningham, Oklahoma State, Anthony Edwards, Georgia, uh, some of them still go to Duke, some of them still go to Carolina, it's going to be harder to get those players. And so you have to develop players within your program. And you have to be willing, by the way, to play the kids that you might have thought are not elite. You've got to play them and you've got to give them an opportunity. And when they perform, you've got to keep playing them. And the one thing that's driven me crazy is I hear all this stuff about Dante Allen. Well, he's given the benefit of the doubt, and you know fans are only rooting for him because he's from Kentucky. No, screw that. They only root for him because he's the only one producing, and they want to win games. And it has nothing to do with him being from Kentucky. And if it was another player from another state who was doing what he did, they would still want him to play. And so with Calipari, like, I'm not going to do the whole, like, the game has passed him by, he's terrible. Like, I still think he's a great coach. But I also think other things can be true as well. I think he's being stubborn, and I think as he gets older, it's getting him, it's getting harder for him to kind of realize that, I, you know, I don't want to say the game is passing him by, but that he has to evolve with the times. And so I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't, I've said enough on Kentucky, and I've done 72 Kentucky segments since the start of the college basketball season, but like I said, it's just so frustrating to watch from a distance because you can see how, you, you can just see um, you know, a car crash coming and the guy driving, who in this case is John Calipari, can't see it, and it's just so, so, so frustrating. But with that said, let's get out of here because that's enough of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast for today. Uh, great show. Great to be back. Great to be doing this show again. I missed you guys while I was gone. Uh, we got some great shows coming up. Don't know where the week's going to take us. Uh, do have a pretty big college basketball guest later in the week, I'm hoping. If you're a college basketball fan, maybe Jared Butler from Baylor might be joining the show. We'll see. 
fingers crossed. Pray to the podcast gods, but that might be happening. Maybe we'll get Trey Wallace, the Tennessee beat writer. We'll see what happens with that. But with that said, that's all for this for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. iTunes, the podcast, Addict App, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Rate, review the show. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Uh, if you have any questions for the show, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. But that's enough for today's show. I am going to get out of here. Don't know exactly when the next episode will be. Maybe on Wednesday, maybe on Thursday. Remains to be seen, but that's all. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I will be back later this week. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.